How we doing? So I have a video to introduce Genesis 34 because it's a, a very interesting chapter. So we'll check this out and I'll start talking. I pulled out a little section. So, a couple questions. Do you know where that took place? New York City, Madison Square Gardens. Do you know when it took place? February 20th, 1939, before the start of World War II. And you have 22,000 people smashed into Madison Square Gardens. You've got a million plus people knowing about this all around New York City. And only one guy protests. His name is Isidore Greenbaum. He's the only guy that said, you know what? What's happening right here should not be happening. He ends up getting arrested, goes before a judge. The judge asks him this. Why did you do that? Quote, there was so much persecution, I lost my head and I felt it was my duty to talk. The magistrate asked him, don't you realize that innocent people might have been killed? Greenbaum replied, do you realize that plenty of Jewish people might be killed with their persecution up there? End quote. What a prophet. What we didn't know in February of 1939 is Hitler had just completed his sixth concentration camp. The plans were in, it was happening. I read that because Genesis 34 is a brutal, evil chapter. And when we are faced with brutal, evil, how do we respond? We'll be like the 22,000 people just caught up in it. 
We'll be like the million around New York City just kind of ignoring it. Or we, will we be the Isidore Greenbaums that say, no, this can't happen. I have to do something. And so we're gonna see a bunch of different responses in Genesis 34 to real evil. And we're gonna talk about those different responses. And we'll end with what is actually a godly Christian response when we see evil. So Genesis is a narrative. It's a story. And sometimes it's okay to read little sections and think about it and talk about it, and that works. But other times for you to get the big picture, you just have to read through the whole thing and then reflect and then kind of go back and figure out what actually happened. What did I just read? And I think for me, Genesis 34 is one of those narratives. You have to read the whole thing or it doesn't make sense You don't see the big picture before trying to dive in. So we're gonna take a 30,000 foot view as we fly over. I'm gonna read the whole chapter and then we'll jump into it. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. If you recall, I'm gonna have to say something here. I know, it's such a bad tendency. So I just ruined the narrative. Jacob was told to move to a certain spot, Bethel, the house of God. He chose not to, and he's living in a spot he should not live in. So we were set up last week for that. Like, bro, you're in the wrong spot. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by laying, lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me, only give the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully. 
because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sisters to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. These words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Genesis 34. Sobering text. Remember, Scripture is God's record of what happens with his people. It's not God condoning what his people do. It's a record of what his people have has done. Sometimes good, a lot of times super bad, like Genesis 34. And you see some different responses here to evil. The first response is, hey, let's leverage evil. It's what Hamar, Shechem's dad does. Look at verse eight. Hamar spoke with them saying, 
The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Dwell with us. The land's going to be open. Get property. It's going to be awesome. Ask whatever amount of money you want from me, and I will pay it. Right? He goes back to his crew. Listen, these guys are here. If we do this deal, man, we're going to make out. We're going to make tons of money. Hamar, Shechem's father, the rapist, never once mentions the rape. It's all about money to him. It's all about the deal to him. It's all about, I'm going to leverage this for prosperity, for money, for finances. When I thought about that, do you remember a thing that was big a couple years ago called the Me Too movement, right? Blew through Hollywood. A guy that everybody knew, this dude's a bad dude, Harvey Weinstein, had been doing stuff over and over and over again to a lot of women, but guess what? They all ignored it. You know why? Prosperity. We make a lot of money off this. We don't want to overturn the apple cart. Don't kill the golden goose, right? So we can kind of think, ah, oh, this, no, this stuff still happens all the time. There's still people that leverage evil and try to make good out of it. I think as believers, we got to be careful. Sometimes we can get caught up in silly stuff that don't, doesn't really matter, right? Free trade this or that. We had to go back to be like, wait a second. We should be very careful where we spend our money, I think, as believers. I don't think a believer should watch a single movie that was ever made by Harvey Weinstein's company. It should just be, no way, no way. I'm never going to support what that man did. I'm not gonna do it. But it's not just the movie, right? It's elites have always, this guy Shechem's a prince, the favorite son. So he gets special treatment. You know, that still happens today. You guys remember a couple of years ago, there was an Olympic Stanford swimmer. That's a pretty elite dude, right? Olympic class, Stanford, elite university. Used to be. Elite university, right? If there are any of those that exist anymore. And he raped a girl. And that trial was big news because of who this young man was. And his dad wrote a letter to the judge. And the letter somehow leaked out because this is what the dad said. How can you punish my son who has all this potential for a 20 minute mistake? Yeah. So the girl wrote a letter and I've read the whole letter. I think it's actually good for us to read things like that because this is what she read back. She wrote back, dad wants leniency, come on. He's Olympic class. He's a Stanford student, 20 minute mistake. This is what she wrote back. She said, a 20 minute mistake? I live in a body that feels like filthy, dirty clothes that I want so bad to take off, but I can't. And it's not gonna be for 20 minutes or 20 days or 20 months. It will be with me for years. The judge presiding over this case, according to California law, 
was supposed to sentence this Olympic Stanford swimmer to six to 12 years. Guess what he gave him? Six months. And he got out early for good behavior. See, the princes like Shechem's, they still get away with it. They still get away with it. We'll leverage this, we'll use it. Don't ruin his prosperity, 20 minute mistake. We're not different. Some people still leverage evil. Number two response, ignore it. Now Jacob gets the information, verse five. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And then his final statement, verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob's like, listen, this is putting me in an awkward position. I don't like the awkward position. We're just gonna ignore this. We're just gonna hope it kind of goes away. It gets settled. Things just change. But you know what evil is like? It's like a cancer. If you ignore it, it always metastasizes. Because what happens, because dad ignores this, what happens to his sons? They become murderers, mass murderers and thieves. So now it's not just a daughter who has been raped. Now his sons are mass murderers and thieves. It's terrible. Dad ignores it, it explodes. Dad ignores it, it explodes. Dads, never ignore evil, never. Take it head on. If you don't know how, talk with a pastor, get some counsel, get some help, but never do what Jacob does right here. It makes the whole situation worse. And we can point fingers at lots of people. A lot of times, Sexual sin gets ignored in the church. Like you, it's hard to go a month or two without some kind of expose happening on a pastor or somebody inside a church who's involved in sexual sin that's gone on for a long time. I know it from personal experience. My older brother, I did not know this until he died, but he was molested in the church that we went to when he was 11 years old. And I was told that after he passed away and it just made like, Oh my goodness, that makes sense of his whole life. No wonder why he was the way he was, okay. But the church hid it, swept it under the rug. It was never dealt with and it metastasized in my brother's heart and caused damage, tons of damage. Number two is, I just ignore this. Number three, silence. Notice, Dinah never says a word. Everyone else is talking and having their two cents worth. The person who was sinned against does not speak a single word. Why would the Bible do that? Because isn't that what happens so often to a woman subjected to sexual sin like this? She goes silent. She goes silent. Fear, 
worry about being damaged goods, worry about retribution, worry about her reputation, they go silent. When I think about the Me Too movement, back to that, like it took one person to come forward about Harvey Weinstein, and then it's all of a sudden 20, 30 other women. Yeah, he did the same to me. Took one person to finally say, break the dam and speak. And again, when that happened, I remember I just read accounts of it. I cut a couple out of women who were finally speaking about what had happened to them. I'll read a couple of them to you. So one girl said this about what he did to her. Quote, she continued to blame herself for not fighting harder. It was always my fault for not stopping him, she said. I had eating problems for years. I was disgusted with myself. It's funny. All these unrelated things I did to hurt myself because of this one thing. Evans told friends some of what had happened, but felt largely unable to talk about it. I ruined several really good relationships because of this. My schoolwork definitely suffered, and my roommates told me to go to a therapist because they thought <clears throat> I was going to kill myself. The second person, the thing with being a victim is I felt responsible, she said, because if I were a strong woman, I would have kicked him in the, and run away, but I didn't. So I felt responsible. That's why there's silence. And you've got Hollywood, right? The most progressive, forward, right? equal, all this stuff. It happened in Hollywood. Crazy to me. Crazy. So heartbreaking. I think sometimes we believe that we've advanced beyond evil somehow. That because we have technology or we have democracy or we have America, that somehow that protects us. No way. No way. That somehow we're not as evil as people were a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. It's just ridiculous. Are you kidding? It's metastasized, if anything. That the iPhone changes us. No way. And the idea, here's where it comes from. If you're a philosopher or you read that kind of stuff, there's a guy named Rousseau who wrote about what he called the noble savage. Have you guys heard of that? It's this idea that if we could just put a human in the right conditions, good conditions, Eden conditions, if you just get them away from oppressors or bad people, bad parents, that were infecting them, that if you just get them by themselves, they would grow up and become noble and incredible noble savages. I watched that Davos thing the opening ceremony where they had a noble savage come and bless the whole thing. I thought, now oh, we're doing it again, aren't we? We're doing the whole thing. That's this idea. Anyone here ever read the book, The Lord of the Flies? That was written by William Golding about a group of English boys that get in a boat and they go and they wreck on an island and it's just them. There's no adults. And what happens? They become evil terrible individuals. What you may not know, that was written in 1950, 1960, right in there. What you may not know is William Golding was writing a rift off a book that was written a hundred years before that. And that book written a hundred years before that was called Coral Island. 
So it was written in 1860. And Coral Island is about a group of English schoolboys. They get on a boat, all the adults die. They end up shipwrecked on an island. And they, because there's no oppressive parents and bad rules, create utopia. So why would William Golding, 100 years later, write the exact opposite book? What happened between 1860 and 1960 that might make him think maybe evil is around and it's really bad? Well, you have World War I, one of the most brutal wars ever fought because mustard gas was used, creeping death, killing millions and millions of people, trench warfare, unbelievable. And you had World War II, Nazis and concentration camps and six million Jews gassed and millions of others killed because they didn't hold up to the Nazi standard. That's why William Golding actually wrote it. Like there's no such thing as the noble savage. There's evil in the heart of humans. Technology does not solve sin. Progressive advancement does not solve sin, right? So Dinah is silent because that's what happens to so many women that are put in this position. They're silenced. They don't feel like they can talk. There's nowhere safe for them. I don't even like that word, but it's true. And there's a third or a fourth way to respond. You explode. So the boys come home, verse seven. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. They explode, verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob and Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, took their sword and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Now, anyone that has a sister can understand these brothers, how they felt. But what becomes, what do they become in this process? Mass murderers. Thieves. What they wanted was their honor of their sister to be restored. What they got was their reputations are muddied for the rest of their life because of this murderous act. What they wanted was justice. What they got was vengeance, genocide of an entire city. And how did they do that? How did they, what was the line they crossed in their mind where they're able to go and murder all the males? Look carefully at verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they, plural, had defiled their sister. True? Who defiled their sister? One dude, check them. Now, I don't know how complicit they were in this. I don't know any of those details, but they made a jump and it's a jump that happens every time that there is genocide. They're all the same. They're all rapists in that city. Not true. They don't know that. There was one rapist that they knew about. But when you stereotype a group of people, it makes genocide really easy. 
they're this way. They're all rapists. They all defiled my sister. I'm going to kill them all. And you get one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible. Did you notice when I read through it, what is missing in this chapter? There's no God, there's no prayer, and there's no altar building. The big three of Genesis, there's no God, there's no praying, and there's no altar building. It's like God has left them to themselves, Lord of the Flies, okay? Okay, you don't want me involved? Okay. So you read this and there's no, it's not good. There's nothing good in this chapter. What's a godly way to respond to evil? I'll give you a couple things I think are important. Number one, deal with your own demon first. Deal with my own demon first. Evil is always an inside job. Like I read commentaries on this and it makes me wanna burn them. Because in verse one, it says this, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. She shouldn't have done that. I say, what? She's not allowed to go out and visit her neighbors? It's this thing that can happen so easily. Well, it's her fault. She shouldn't have been this way. She shouldn't have dressed this way. She shouldn't have looked that way. No, no. Evil always begins in my own heart. That's where it starts. Evil begins right here. I'm supposed to deal with evil. I have to deal with my own evil first and foremost. Lord, what's wrong with me? Now we all agree rape is wrong, but Jesus takes sexual sin to another level. I'll read it for you. It's Matthew chapter 27 through verse 30. Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery sexual sin. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That is a radical sexual ethic. Now, I know there might be a person or two in here that it is a struggle for you not to sleep with people that you're not married to. But for most of us, probably not our issue. But we don't get off. Jesus has some really hard things to say that there is a fire in every single one of us that if it is allowed, it will burn us and take us to hell. Jesus says the lustful intent and every man knows what that is. That's not a glance, that is a, ooh, that's a, ooh. Jesus says, look out. Because there's a gigantic difference between lust and love. 
Genesis 34 is lust. Lust is this. Lust is hungry for anyone. Love is I want a covenant with one for life. Lust has games and anxiety and weirdness. Love is saying, no, I'm gonna be safe and vulnerable and honest with you. Lust takes you to hell. Love is the language of heaven. Lust is looking at every other person as an object of sexual gratification, taking. Love is, how can I give myself to you? And the difference between the two, one's heaven and the other's hell. One is destruction, the other is delight. And I don't know if you've ever watched a chick flick from Hollywood, I don't recommend them, but like Marley and me or whatever it is. What's interesting to me is this, they always flirt with lust, but every single chick flick ends with love because even Hollywood knows lust takes you to hell. Love, love brings you to heaven. And what I share with young people all the time is this, sex is like nuclear power. Nuclear power inside of a concrete, reinforced, control rod environment is beautiful and brilliant and turns on lights and warms your home and is awesome. But nuclear power outside of concrete, outside of control rods, what do we call that? A nuclear explosion that's devastating and destruction. See, sex, God designed inside of the concrete controls of marriage. And inside of that, it's beautiful and brilliant and amazing. And it warms you and changes you and makes it heaven for you. Outside, hell. And I don't know if you follow trends right now, but there's a massive trend in America where they have not seen change this fast happen in American history and it's on polygamy. That right now about a quarter, 20, almost 20, 22%, of 22% of Americans say polygamy is fine. It's exploding and it's gonna be hell. It's gonna be hell. There'll be hell to pay, it's coming. So Jesus, man, he is, gets serious about this. If your eye causes you to be lustful, it's leading you, you to a, Genesis 34, what does he say? Tear out your eye. If your hand is causing you to be lustful, cut off your arm. How serious is that, right? Now is Jesus literally telling you to pluck out your eye or cut off your arm? If he was, he's telling us to cut off the wrong part, right? But what Jesus is saying is this, this is of the most serious nature. I'm gonna speak in the most serious terms because it's heaven or hell. That is what is at stake right here. I'm at, I struggle here, what do I do? Jesus talks about the heart in that text because ultimately that's where it all matters. It's the heart, it's your heart. And in the kingdom, in Christianity, the, the key to change is not 
a little help here, a little remodel of the heart. The Bible says, "Uh uh-uh, you need to have your old heart completely removed and thrown away, and you need a brand new heart. Read Ezekiel 36, 25. And you need the power of God's spirit to live a different kind of life. You're not gonna do it on your own. You need a new heart and the power of God's spirit to help you live a different kind of life. It takes complete transformation of the human soul to not fall into this hell. I'm a believer, what about me? Pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24, a Psalm that a person who struggled with sexual sin prays, his name is David. And he says this, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. If there's a spark in me, get it before it burns my house down and lead me on the path everlasting. I did a wedding for a man, John Bergen. He's 88 years old when I did his wedding to Pam. I was like 30 at the time. I felt like Doogie Howser. I'm like, bro, I don't belong here. And he'd been a missionary in Africa for like 40 years, come over and he actually, I don't know if you know who J. Vernon McGee is, but big Bible teacher. He was the guy that answered the letters for J. Vernon McGee. When letters came in, he's the guy to answer. I'm like, bro, are you kidding me? I should not be doing this wedding. I mean, are you, this is silly, right? Just a great guy. This is what he told me. He said, Matt, since the time I was in my 20s, every single morning, I pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. And God has been faithful to me all these years. John Bergen. And there's, there's a guy I hope to see in heaven because he's gonna be so far up there. That's how you deal with it. Search me, catch this thing, nip it in the bud before it burns down my house and takes me to hell. Sexual sin. You deal first with your own sin. Number two, you get angry. The boys are right aren't they? They come in, they're ticked. They say, verse 31, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob does not answer. Jacob knew they're actually right. They didn't do it out. They didn't carry it out right, but we, I should be mad right now. They're calling their dad out on his passivity. We should get angry at sexual sin. The Bible says this, Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry, but do not sin. We're never to be passive toward this kind of stuff. They make a mistake because they explode. And you know what? Explosive anger, about 99.99% of the time is wrong. There might be a 1% or a tiny 0.01% time when you gotta explode. Maybe Isidore Greenbaum, I just gotta go off right now. This is completely wrong. One in a million, most of the time it's wrong. When the Bible talks about anger, especially God's anger, what the Bible is saying is this. It's saying God has a settled opposition to that. I won't stand for it. We should have a settled opposition to evil, not in my house, not in my church, not in my heart, not in my city, not in my world, a settled opposition to it. What does that look like? I think about William Wilberforce, who heard about the evils of slavery and had a settled opposition to it. So guess what he did? He got elected to parliament. 
And in parliament, every single time he had the chance, it was slavery must end. And he did this year after year after year after decade. And finally, it was abolished. That is a settled opposition to evil. And it changed the world. That's what we're supposed to be. Get angry. Get angry at it. Pray, God, make me angry at the things that make you angry. Move me with the same passion you have for things. Make me angry at the same things that make you angry. Get angry. Number three, defend the weak. Defend the dinas. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I read that article about the girl saying, my friends were telling me I need to see a therapist. You know what I think she actually needed? Justice. She needed justice. She needed somebody to go to jail. That's what she needed. So I was talking with somebody that I'm close to that had been molested as a young girl. And this is what she told me. She said, the worst thing about it was that no one fought for me. Everyone wanted it to just go away. Just make this thing go away. This is too awkward. This is too weird. So no one ever fought for me. And it has scarred her for life. No one fought for me. Romans 13 says this, the government bears the sword for a reason to punish evildoers. So I'm a mandatory reporter. Now it's because I'm a pastor. It's also because I'm in foster care, but I'm a mandatory reporter because evil must be brought to justice. That person cannot continue doing the same evil. Shechem would rape somebody else. So it's, oh, no, sorry, you're getting turned in. We're gonna defend those that need to be defended. It's even more than that. I have this vision in my heart about what a city is supposed to be. And it comes from the Bible. So lots of people have these crazy ideas about Revelation, what Revelation is, and they wanna do it this way and cut it this way. Man, I spent years looking at the four major ways to look at Revelation. Here's what I think Revelation is. It's real simple. It is God getting the hell out of earth. That's what it is. Trumpet by trumpet, bowl by bowl, it's God getting the hell out of earth because he wants to come back down and his presence to invade again. So he gets the hell out of earth. Well, if that's God's plan for the cosmos, for this earth that we live on, why not start right now? Let's get the hell out of earth. Let's get the hell out of me. Let's get the hell out of my family. Let's work on that. It's called inaugurated eschatology, by the way. I'm not just making this up. It's Jesus inaugurated this kingdom 2,000 years ago. And man, we wanna work and see that it grows and becomes what he wants. Because one day he's gonna return. And he's gonna fully get the hell out of earth. So we defend, especially the weak and the vulnerable, the dinas without a voice. And then lastly and fourthly, I have a saying, I've mentioned it many times. Pain that is not transformed will be transferred. People that have been pained in this way and it hasn't been transformed, nothing's happened with it. It's just sat in them. You're gonna transfer, you're gonna hurt other people. You're gonna do things you would never think. I'll give you one final story. I think it was seven years ago, right about this time, got a phone call from someone that my wife and I know well, lives about a thousand miles away from us. She starts talking and crying. She had messed around with an app 
invited somebody over and they'd raped her. And this was a day or two later. And so this girl is saying, I'm calling to say goodbye. I've got a gun. I'm going to kill myself. So you go into like, hey, come on, you stop. So Charity and I were like, we had two phones. So she's talking, I'm talking, I'm calling people in the city that she lives in, trying to find, can you go over there? Can you do an intervention? No, we can't do that. We don't have the authority to do that. We have to be called by her. The only thing you can do is call the police. So finally, after just, it's like, this is 45 minutes long. I'm like, I, okay, she's gonna be mad at me, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the cops. So I call the police, they head there for welfare. And then I, I break the news to this person on the phone with, I said, I know you're gonna be mad at me, but I didn't know what else to do. The police are coming. And she said, well, you're gonna see me on the evening news then because they will not come through this door. I got a gun and they're not coming through this door. So now I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, right? And now I have to tell the police, hey, she's being irrational. She does, she's armed. So now they're like, well, we're gonna be armed too. I'm thinking, oh no. And there was a moment that I couldn't listen. Like both phones are on speakerphone. Like I'm on the cops with one, Charity's with the girl. There was a moment where I went, oh no, oh no. The cops are saying, we're coming through the door. She's saying, don't let them, if they come through the door, I'm shooting. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. This was a person I know very well. She'd never been violent before in her life because pain that is not transformed gets transferred. You do things you never knew you would do. You do things you never thought you were capable of because of how hurt you are. Now, praise God, she put down the gun, like a moment of, ah, oh, put down the gun and doing better. Pain that's not transformed will be transferred. You have to be healed. The Bible say, says this, it's Galatians 6.1. It's the privilege of pastoral ministry Galatians 6.1 says this. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ because he bore our burden. We get to do the same thing for people. And if you're in here and you have experienced that kind of pain, get healed. We have a group of ladies, if you're a lady, called Titus II. Every once in a while, I'm in with a Titus II lady, uh, and I always sit there and wonder, why am I here? I am the appendix right now, because they're so brilliant, and they have such great wisdom and biblical guidance. It's just, I'm useless. I'm the appendix. Talk with the Titus II lady. We have Wildflowers, which is a group that is specifically targeted to getting your pain transformed through the power of Jesus Christ. Get signed up for those classes. If you're a guy, we've got 423 ministries. We've got pastors. We'll talk with you. We'll walk with you. Jesus Christ can heal you and take your pain and transform it and make it into something that you would never believe. And I've watched it happen time and time again because he's able to do that. Genesis 34, the Bible does not skip the hard things of life. 
Jesus came to heal us from the hard things of life and make us healers for other people. It's 1 Corinthians chapter one. With the comfort you have received, comfort other people. Pain gets transformed and we get transformed and become healers of others. Jesus, I pray for those in this room who know too well the story of Dinah. I pray that your spirit would be the comforter for them. I pray that your body would be a place that bears their burden with them. I pray that the pain that they have would be transformed as only you can do. I pray for us as a community that we would be a community that handles these things correctly, dealing with it in ourselves first. Is it I being radical on sexual sin because it will metastasize? that we be a group of people that defend the weak and the vulnerable, that we be a group of people that willingly bears the burdens of others during their difficulty. Equip us for that. I pray as we go from here with this heavy chapter, we would always keep in mind that you are the king And one day, you will take everything that is evil and broken and you will wrap it up and you will throw it away in a place called the lake of fire and we will live with you free of disease, free of evil, free of rape, free of everything that's broken. Happy day that will be. May we remember you're the king and you're coming for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.